This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, if all goes well, we're going to have a very special guest in segment two, someone who has been heard on this program before, but will be heard, I think, in an entirely new manner. And I hope that is enough of a tease to keep you uh, wondering and staying tuned for segment B. But this, of course, is segment A, the top of the show, and we would like to commence this, as we always do, with On This Date in History. On this date, December 7th in the year 185, the appearance of a guest star was noted in the histories of the later Han Dynasty in China. This is generally recognized as the first of only some 50 supernova to have been recorded historically. On this date in 1909, Belgian-born American inventor Leo Bakeland created the modern plastics industry when he introduced the process of making Bakelite, the world's first plastic. I believe it was only available in one color, and this limited its usefulness in what became the modern plastics industry. However, it's a very sturdy plastic, I believe, and you can still find objects made of it to this day. On December 7th, 1917, the United States entered World War I when it declared war on Austria-Hungary. On this date in 1931, the last Ford Model A was produced in the United States. This has some sentimental value for yours truly because I learned to drive on a 1928 flatbed Model A truck out in the what was then farmland of the East Bay. And, of course, on this date, December 7th in 1941, the U.S. Naval Air Base at Pearl Harbor underwent a surprise attack by the forces of Imperial Japan, bringing the United States into World War II. I'm really quite surprised to realize the U.S. entered both world wars basically on December 7th. Although, Mr. McMillan correctly points out we didn't actually declare war till the next day. All right, I quoted the day today, and I think we need to set this one up. Um, comes in the context of, well, let's quote from the parade section of the Sunday Bee a few weeks back, where someone asked, will Congress ever find the courage to launch a thorough examination of the Iraq War? To which the writers at Parade responded, Washington is braced for a major congressional review of, of the war early next year. First on the agenda will be what went wrong in Iraq and where America goes from here. In our view, the best analysis of this complex issue is contained in Fiasco, the bestseller by Thomas Ricks of the Washington Post. This long ramp-up is for the quote of the day, which came from New Jersey Representative Robert Menendez, who was actually talking about uh, in the context of a House committee investigating Katrina, but the same might well be said for that uh, the review of the Iraq War. Said Representative Menendez, if they couldn't get the truth out of Rafael Palmero, how can they get it out of the President of the United States? Our quip of the day comes from The Onion, which in a headline noted, U.S. foreign policy hurting American students' chances of getting laid abroad. All right, our jokes of the day, and we have several, comes from an anonymous source on the web titled, Some Things to Ponder. Let's do three. First off, business conventions are important because they demonstrate how many people a company can operate without. Second one. Do you realize that in about 40 years, we'll have thousands of old ladies running around with tattoos? And rap music will be the golden oldies. And finally, 
If you don't have a sense of humor, you probably don't have any sense at all. Our statistic of the day, and this one should give anyone here at the university some pause as they contemplate leaving the confines of good old UCD, or whichever college you may attend, and going out in the real world. According to USA Today, 51% of companies monitor how much time employees spend on the phone and the numbers they call. 22% tape workers' conversations on the phone. I did not know that, and I find that very disturbing. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for illiteracy after education officials in New Zealand announced that students would henceforth be allowed to use text-speak in written tests. As long as the meaning is clear, teachers will now have to accept text messaging abbreviations such as UR for your, S-U-M-T-H-N-G for something, and the letters C-U for C-U as if they were standard English. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for being in that holiday season after a construction worker in Port Tampa, Florida, mistakenly chopped down a 35-foot Christmas tree used every year for holiday celebrations. We had a history with this tree, said a forlorn Kevin Dwyer, the festival organizer. And uh, I guess it was a few months ago, it was clearly an ugly week for family vacations when a Greyhound bus traveling on Interstate Highway somewhere in Ohio suddenly released the contents of its toilet and they poured through the open sunroof of the Ford Explorer next to it. At that point, apparently, Robert Stokes, his wife Angela, and their three children were drenched in what is described as a mixture of urine, feces, and toilet paper. The Stokes family are now seeking $280,000 in damages. And as much as we have scoffed here at Radio Parallax with some of the large settlements that American Jurisprudence awards, we think $280,000 for this mishap sounds about right. All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, let's talk about uh, some miscellaneous items here. Uh, We have, since we last spoke, had a chance to see Robert Greenwald's film, Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. And uh, we imagine that a lot of you are going to want to see this film and uh, and suggest that that would be a good move on your part. Uh, in a related story, we would note we've been sitting on some, uh, some clippings here, which have an interesting contrast between uh, one of them written before the election and three of them written after the election. The one that came on November 3rd, before the election 
was headlined, U.S. Watchdog on Iraq Written Out of a Job. Subheadline, Pink Slip for Overseer Mysteriously Added to Big Spending Bill. This came from James Glantz of the New York Times. It started as follows. Investigations led by Republican, a Republican lawyer named Stuart Bowen in Iraq have sent U.S. occupation officials to jail on bribery on conspiracy charges, exposed disastrously poor construction work by well-connected companies such as Halliburton and Parsons Corp., and discovered that the military did not properly track hundreds of thousands of weapons it shipped to Iraqi security forces. But tucked away in a huge military authorization bill that President Bush signed two weeks ago, this is written November 3rd, of course, is what some of Bowen's supporters believe is his reward for repeatedly embarrassing the administration, a pink slip in the form of an obscure provision terminating the federal oversight agency that he heads, the Office of the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction. It was noted that a showdown was expected in a follow-up article the next day in the Chronicle about, uh, about whether they, this pink slip was going to go forward. But curiously enough, and I would say thankfully, after the election, uh, we saw the following headline in the Sacramento Bee. Bills would resurrect Iraq Oversight Agency. Democrats say they want continued hard look at construction project spending. This article started by noting that congressional Democrats say they will press new legislation this week to restore the power of a federal agency in charge of ferreting out waste and corruption in Iraq and greatly increase its investigative reach. The new bills, the first of what are likely to be dozens of Democratic efforts to resurrect investigations of war profiteering and financial fraud in government contracting, could be introduced as early as Monday. And follow-up articles since then indicate that this is going to go forward. They are going to save this agency, and, uh, and hopefully this will lead to some crooks going to jail. I was asking some people at work uh, who, I, who I gave a copy of this video to, uh, some military families saying, I think you should see this, your husband, husband should see this. Uh, all Americans should probably see this. I asked him, what do you think Halliburton is charging for a six-pack of Coke? Charging our fighting men and women in Iraq out of their pay for a six-pack of Coke. And by the way, not a Coke imported from the United States, a Coke with Arabic writing bottled in the Middle East, or in this case, more properly, canned in the Middle East. My nurse said, uh, 12 bucks? I said, no, higher. She said, 20, 20 bucks? I said, no, no. She was 30 bucks. No. She's looking at me incredulous. What, 40? I go, $45 for a six-pack of Coca-Cola. Ladies and gentlemen, is what Halliburton thinks is a reasonable profit. Do you think maybe there's some war profiteering going on in this effort over there in the Middle East? We'd like to mention at this point that the opinions expressed in this program represent those of the host and not necessarily those of the radio station or our sponsors. But having said that, you know that's war profiteering. Of course, you know the neocons uh, now on the defensive have said that what they want to do over there is bring democracy to the Middle East. They pointed out on many occasions that the only functioning democracy in the Middle East is that of Israel. So we thought we'd take a look at the functioning democracy of Israel. We mentioned about a month ago about uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who's been brought into the government by Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, uh, 
to shore up a shaky coalition government that was weakened by the uh, the atrocity of that summer war Israel launched on uh, Lebanon. Well, uh, Lieberman uh, has been somewhat of a controversial figure in Israel. He's, he's a little bit hawkish on some things. And according to Joseph Fetterman in the Associated Press uh, last week, Israel's Deputy Prime Minister, Avigdor Lieberman, said Israel should assassinate Hamas leadership, ignore the moderate Palestinian president, and walk away from international peace efforts. Since joining the government as Minister of Strategic Affairs, Lieberman's inflammatory statements, such as the one two weeks ago, of a call for Hamas's leadership to be sent to paradise, have raised fears that peace efforts will be frozen. Speaking to Israel Radio, Lieberman said he believes the Palestinians are not interested in setting up their own state, but rather in destroying Israel. He said Israel must abandon past peace deals known as the Oslo Accords and the Roadmap. Lieberman's party, Yisrael Betnahu, or Israel Our Home, has 11 seats in Israel's 120-member parliament and provides a comfortable safety net to Olmert in parliamentary votes. But the government's expansion has been roundly criticized by Israeli doves and Arab activists who equated Lieberman with far-right European politicians. On a considerably more uh, light note, I, uh, <laughs> I saw a Doonesbury strip uh, last week I think we need to share with you. Uh, where um, B.D., who's now a wounded Iraqi war veteran, is speaking with uh, the chaplain of his former college, Walden College, who says to him, you know, B.D., I'm a pacifist, so I don't think anyone should join the military. But, he said in the second panel, you should hear the fine young patriots taking my ethics class. War supporters all, but quick to explain why they're not enlisting. Final panel shows a student addressing the class, reading from a paper that says, And I truly believe I can better serve my country at a hedge fund. Hedge funds are, of course, those uh, Wall Street instruments that have been uh, that much in the news lately. Uh, don't know too much about them, actually. But we did ask the question on this show uh, some time back uh, why it was the young college Republicans here at UCD and elsewhere, we're not enlisting in droves. And, uh, well, I don't know whether it's a hedge fund or just where it is they think they could best serve their country. But one thing's clear, it ain't in Iraq. And a story I've been sitting on since September 30th, just not quite sure what to do about. It didn't take precedence as the election was ramping up, but I think it needs to be aired. Was this story from the B? Import ban on alligator goods lifted. The governor, who has worn crocodile boots, signs measure. Apparently, starting next year, Senate Bill 1485 by Senator Dennis Hollingsworth, Republican Temecula, will exempt alligator or crocodile products from a statewide ban on commercial importation of products made from 24 different animals. Ocelots and free-roaming feral horses are among those still protected. Apparently, the governor was criticized last year when, in the wake of USC losing to uh, University of Texas in the Rose Bowl, Governor Schwarzenegger lost a bet with Governor Rick Perry uh, regarding some uh, handmade alligator boots. Uh, so the governor's office at that time said, well, he did send Governor Perry some boots, but they were custom-made in Texas. They thereby sidestepped the California law because he, he didn't import them for sale in California. 
The Bee's uh, Kevin Yamamura closed his article, noting that Hollingsworth never discussed SB 1485 with Schwarzenegger, but he did speak briefly with the governor when he observed a couple years ago that both were wearing alligator boots. I told him it was illegal to sell alligator boots in California, and he was surprised to find out, Hollingsworth said. He didn't think that was possible. Well, at that time, it, it was possible that it was illegal, but uh, it won't be for uh, evidently very much longer. We don't think this is a very good idea. They poach a lot of alligators, caimans in South, uh, South America, uh, alligators in our own American South, and uh, yeah, this really does send the wrong message. All right, two final items. Uh, listening to uh, Talk of the Nation, Science Friday with Ira Flato over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. I know that they were talking about um, a mathematician who was invented over in France. Uh, he was sort of a, uh, a composite person to push France, uh, France, French mathematics into the future. They invented an identity form. It was an interesting story. But what came out of it was that the French were instrumental in bringing us in the 1960s and 70s this supposed improvement in how we teach math. It was called the new math back in the 1960s. Our position on this program uh, has been and continues to be that the way we teach math in the United States probably should result, rightfully, in some long prison sentences. I was surprised to find out that, uh, that this apparently has its roots in what these French intellectuals did back in the 50s. Evidently, they came out of uh, the theaters showing the Jerry Lewis movies and got together in their cafes, smoked cigarettes, and decided that what we needed was more talk and math about set union and intersection. My own personal career, this is about the time the wheels came off in my mathematical education. I always been a good student of math until about the eighth and ninth grades when all of a sudden I didn't understand what the point of any of this was. I remember very well puzzling over the matters of set, union, and intersection and wondering why in God's name anybody would spend more than 15 seconds on this topic. Many decades later, I still don't know the answer to that question. In the physics, the chemistry, the mathematics, the biology, the statistical courses, everything I've taken since, I, I, I'm trying to think why any of that was needed. And again, still don't have an answer. We've been promising to talk to a real live mathematician on this show for a while. We haven't done it yet, but, but by God, in, in 07, we're going to make it happen. And I want to wrap, uh, wrap up this segment with a story that I heard, which is a little bit surprising, about uh, apparently a gold miner up in the foothills here in California. And there are quite a few gold mines dating back to the, really the gold rush era in the 19th century. Apparently was up working his diggings earlier this year when there was a collapse of one of the beams. Uh, in the rescue effort, it turns out they actually had to amputate the lower portion of his leg. My understanding was that as part of the recovery period, of course, he was talking to some of the people in the hospital, rather despondent about his misfortune. And uh, apparently when one of, the, uh, one of the hospital staff suggested that he still had a great deal to be thankful for and he should, you know, do what he could to cheer up, he sadly asked her, well, who's going to be interested in a 38-year-old one-legged gold digger? To which the counselor replied, Paul McCartney. Just couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. Love is all you need. 
All right, we are back. As promised at the top of the show, we're going to have what I hope will prove to be a very interesting guest in this segment, which will be myself. <laughs> to help me with this little bit of chicanery is uh, the former general manager here at KDVS, Stephen Valentino. It's great to be back asking the tough questions, Doug. <laughs> Taking your role bottle as Larry King, no doubt. <laughs> Just softballs for you, hit it, hit out of the park. Well, you know, here on KDVS, we had a public affairs uh, uh, host, uh, Steve Lambert. He was, people were calling in with their own questions, with their own stories. He was kind of doing a, a show on autopilot. Well, he would pose the questions, and then people would call into an answering machine and then tell stories and okay. answer the questions. I think it was a very innovative concept for public affairs. Well, inspired I, by the innovations that we constantly try and bring your way here to the listening audience of KDVS. What I thought we'd do at this point was uh, switch chairs. <laughs> you realize this is radio and no one can see us, right? No, but we'll, we'll do the appropriate noises here, <laughs> okay. I think, as we, as we change seats. Okay. I'm standing up. <laughs> I'm walking across the room. Now, I'm sure that I sound different on this mic. Wow, I just feel so much power over here now. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> All right, well. You know, I, I thought it'd be fun just to not have to be the pilot, to be able to sit here, you know. Sit as, back, relax, not have to worry about what you're going to ask people next. And and we should, of course, uh, as a prelude, point out to people that uh, uh, for next week's program, I expect to be in Nicaragua. At a secure, undisclosed location. And uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if I can score an interview with Daniel Ortega? Ooh. Well, we'll see what we can do, but uh, I won't be here. This will be a pre-recorded program, and uh, you will be the host. And yes, I, appreciate, I will. Appreciate very much you doing that. So thanks for letting me warm up the seat before I get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Drive. You get to basically take the yoke here and fly the plane. Okay. Well, my guest today is Douglas Everett, host of the very popular program <laughs> Radio Parallax on KDVS. Douglas also <laughs> is an occasional host on Insight on Capital Public Radio. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the program. <laughs> Boy, oh boy. <laughs> Man, that is thick. <laughs> of course, I guess we can also plug at this juncture the uh, public affairs show, which you did host for, and still host for many years here. Stop making sense? Stop making sense. Currently heard on Tuesdays. I'm glad you did your homework. <laughs> but uh, uh, actually, by the time this airs next week, you will be on the cusp of graduating this institution, I understand. I, yeah, I think I'll be out of here. I think I'll have my robe on by that point. Are you going to continue in the quarters to come? Whose interview is this, Doug? Okay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, take off. Take over. All right. Well, your, your airplane. You are uh, currently overseas, or not overseas, in Central America. You've done a lot of traveling over the years uh, to many places, right? I think about 70 countries. And you've also you've been around the world. You've been just about everywhere, to every continent except Antarctica, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. What is the most interesting place you've been? You know, people ask that, and it's, that's too tough of a question to answer. You can name about a half dozen that are pretty cool places, but it's hard to pick one. For example, for example, like when in Nepal, took a trek up into the Himalayas and went up to the what was the the Tengboche Monastery, was uh, uh, down the road from Mount Everest. In fact, those of us lucky enough to, to do the hike, get up there, get a bed, and I was I made a point to go in and grab the bed first off <laughs> ahead of ahead of the competition. Uh, I was sitting there in a sleeping bag looking out past my feet out the window at Mount Everest, which is pretty cool. But it's hard to compare that to, like, Iguazu Falls, which was also pretty stunning. Now, where is that? Iguazu Falls is kind of the, one of the premier tourist attractions of both Brazil and Argentina. It's on the border between them. Paraguay's just just a stone's throw away. The, the three countries more or less come together at that point. 
And um, it really kind of makes Niagara Falls look like a pretty second-rate waterfall. It is really, really stunning. And in Victoria Falls in Africa is no slouch, but I think Iguazu even did it one better. But tough to compare like a waterfall and a view of, you know, the world's mightiest mountain. So when you're traveling, and you've been so many places, what, when you get to a new place, say a place you haven't been, do you hit like the main tourist attractions or are you right off the beaten path already? I think you want to get a little off the beaten track, but you don't necessarily want to be like eaten by cannibals. So there's kind of of a... It's a balancing act. Yeah, there's a certain amount of balance involved in the process, but uh, you don't want to be staying in the Hilton. But then again, I remember flying to Cairo once, and I thought, I do thank you, want to be staying in the Hilton. So booked one night there just to kind of get, you know, get a feel for the place. Plus, you're kind of jet lagged. So sometimes you should splurge. Sometimes you should not splurge and really try and uh, experience it as the natives do. I think that's the best kind of uh, compromise. Now, you've been, I mean, you've been to a variety of places, first world, third world. Um, what kind of preparation goes into, you know, say you're going to a place in, uh, say, Central Africa or someplace? What kind of preparation needs to go into that? You know, you should know a little bit about the lay of the land. And unfortunately, I'd like to put a plug in for, you know, just studying a little bit about geography. Most Americans, they did some study recently. Americans couldn't tell where they were on the globe, like the majority. I mean, there's all these different studies. It's very disturbing how little Americans really do know about other places in the world. So you should know a little bit about it. A little bit of basic research. Now with the web, of course, at your disposal, you can learn, you know, so much so quickly. But um, if you're not going to be, you know, like the Club Med kind of tourist, you know, there's a lot of people who just want to go somewhere and never have to think. And tour companies will charge you a premium dollar for the privilege of just going somewhere and kind of having your own, you know, transport a little chunk of America or American standards somewhere else. Very expensive, not really real world at all. It could be nice, you know, going to the beach and places like that. I'm sure, you know, I mean, it is nice, but it's just not experiencing that country as it is. So, I mean, if you don't want that kind of experience, and I don't, I don't really recommend it. That's not the kind of traveling I like to do. It's great for some folks. But, um, you know, Lonely Planet is a wonderful, there's so many resources now for the person who doesn't want to spend a fortune, wants to go somewhere, have a good time. Uh, economically, there's a lot of resources available. The Lonely Planet series when I took off in 1987 for like a year, went around the world. I had eight Lonely Planet books in my backpack. <laughs> and it was good because there's a lot of places you couldn't buy them. So it was it was worthwhile having. That company has just put out really wonderful, I don't know how many books there are in there. There's probably a hundred of them. Various places to go, regions to go. If you read up on what they've got to say, uh, you'll be pretty well informed. And they, again, tend to focus on more off-the-beaten-path type things? They very much do. They tend to be sometimes a little down on, you know, enjoying the premier tourist attractions of a place. Like, oh, everyone does that. And, you know, it's crowded with a bunch of tourists. Well, because it's a really nice thing to see. So that's why people go there to see it. They get a little bit snotty about that once in a while. But, I mean, by and large, they're just a goldmine of good information. So I'd recommend anyone out there contemplating chips in the future. It's, you know, they're, they're a good resource. You hear a lot about, well, the ugly American. Yeah. Is that a true perception? When I went on that long trip, you know, I was like 34. I didn't have a mortgage, didn't have a wife, didn't have a house, didn't have a dog. I thought this is a good time. Still don't have like four of those things, right? <laughs> well, who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> I did have a wife for a while, but I should launch into Rodney Dangerfield. Ooh, but I tell you, it was, yeah, you know, my wife, she cut me under two days of sex a month. I was lucky. A couple guys I know she cut out completely. 
but no, I, 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 I was able to take off at that time, paid off my debts, and it was really the funnest thing I ever did. So everyone out there in your 20s, in your 30s, think about clearing a path to do that. It may take a year or five years to do it, but I think that you'll enjoy an experience You know, when you're relatively young, even without a lot of money, more than you might when you're, say, 70 years old. It's hard to go sleep in a treehouse or sleep on a beach when if you're 70 years old, let's face it. But I thought I'd see the, the ugly American everywhere, and to my surprise, the Americans that I met traveling the way I did were just really a great bunch of people. They really were. So where did you meet the ugly American then? Was it in those articles? I, I, honest, did you not I didn't. I didn't. I, very, I can't say that I met the ugly American. There was one point at a party somewhere in, in uh, Thailand or something, and one guy was just being an obnoxious, just full of himself, talking about how it was like this and how it was like that. And I kind of looked at someone else and said, you know, that's the kind of American that gives us a bad name everywhere. The guy looked at me and said, he's Canadian. <laughs> I mean, you hear a lot about Americans traveling overseas, though, I mean, you know, claiming to be Canadian, and maybe that's, you know. <laughs> well, these days, I think yeah. I would sew a maple leaf under my back. In fact, I may sew a maple leaf under my backpack for travel currently. A lot of a lot of America's foreign policy gaffes, shall we say, are not sitting well with the rest of the world, and, uh, you know, it's easy for me to see why. But has that, I mean, has the reception you've received changed? In, I, you know, I can I last five years in all the travel I've done up till recently up till this year last year I I'm I'm really hard pressed to think of any time where being an American caused anybody to sneer or to, to to give me a negative reaction the American people I think are in the minds of most people in the world different than the American government I think Americans by and large are liked everywhere but the American government's policies may be, you know, abhorred just about, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> everywhere. I mean, I've had experiences, you know, interacting with foreigners where these like foreign policy questions do come up. You can't necessarily escape it. So it, how do you do you dance around it or do you just well, I flat think if out someone objects to, like, say, the war in Iraq and I thought it was an idiotic, horrible, ridiculous idea, which we made, you know, we took a great pains to express that point of view on this radio program again and again and why. Uh, if someone brings up the, the, the war in Iraq, I just say, look, I did everything I could to make sure that we didn't go down this foolhardy path. So I'm not, uh, I'm not supporting the American government, so I don't think that people then, you know, look at you the same way. It's easy to see getting, you know, kind of testy with people if, if, you're, a, if you're, you know, Rush Limbaugh-type Bush supporter, but that's, that's my not case. Not you. That's not me, and so uh, I don't have the problem. Out of curiosity, what 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 kind of encounters did you have? Well, I mean, it's the same kind of situation where you're you're interacting, and this is mostly with uh, foreign exchange students. But you know, issues about the war and issues about our foreign policy come up, and from my experience with a few people, has been it's your government this, your government that, and it's been harder for them to separate the two. Well, I, um, I'm kind of a little surprised to hear that. I think most people realize that, you know, uh, that they are different from their government. They don't control what their government does. And that if someone is objecting to the policies of, like, the French government and he's a French citizen, well, he didn't. he's not responsible for those policies necessarily. So let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, <laughs> things a little bit lighter. I'm sure you've flown some interesting airlines over the years because <laughs> – some of the destinations you've been to are not exactly, you know, uh, first class United Airlines or, well, maybe well, that's not the best example, but... Well, yeah, well, yeah, maybe not, but I, I do remember going to East Africa, and I, I, uh, I maybe, maybe, maybe from studying anthropology right here at UC Davis, always thought if I get near Madagascar, I, I have to go there. 
And as it turned out, I, I did take a flight from Kenya to Madagascar, and some uh, Americans were sitting next to me, and, and it turned they were primatologists from the University of North Carolina. And uh, they said, why are you going to Madagascar? And I said, well, I, I'm an, I want to go see some lemurs. <laughs> Just looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. You actually want to go see lemurs? And i like, how can you come to this part of the world and not want to go see lemurs? And they thought that was a pretty good answer. So they were, they were pretty happy about that. But the airline in question, uh, I believe at the time, had one Boeing 707, aging Boeing 707, which was a commercial airplane for Air Madagascar at times, and at other times, it's the president's Air Force One. (laughs) He basically, whenever he feels the need, borrows the airplane for state visits. It was at least in good condition, then, I would assume, Uh, the president of Madagascar. I I didn't, it's an old plane, I was a little dubious, and... And one time we took a flight from Irkutsk in, in Siberia to Moscow, and I tell you, the Russian <laughs> aircraft did not inspire confidence. It was almost it was almost something out of the Borat movie because they had, I think we had a big KGB agent sitting next to us, and then when they came to for like, now no one expects airline food to be really good, but when they hand <laughs> you the paper bag and it's got big grease stains on the side... <laughs> You know that the Soviets had a ways to go in, in you know, airline service. But the worst, uh, but the worst had to be, I think, uh, Burma, the national, the air carrier of Burma, which I think was Burma Air, Air Burma, I forget. But It's not to- called Burma anymore, right? It's called Myanmar now, and the capital Rangoon is now called Yangon. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to keep track. Well, okay, going on with the airline, though. You know, at that time, Air Burma, I believe, when I was there, had lost... Two of their four aircraft, which, which, which I thought was you know, a, a truly brave traveler is someone who will roll the dice on Air Burma when they've lost fifty percent of the fleet. <laughs> so I, you know, I did. I I went by train. How was? was oh, there. you didn't take yeah, it. Took took the train. What were the cultural experiences that took you by surprise in some well, of the places you visited? Um, we've all seen pictures of rickshaws. Right. Okay. A man pulling a cart with large wheels, like wagon wheels, like, you know, something out of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Those were still used as taxis in, in Calcutta. So when I got there and I saw these, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. How much do you tip on that? Well, I, I don't, <laughs> not a lot. I mean, believe you, believe me. I, and I, that was that's an interesting, interesting story because I got there to, the Lonely Planet series had referred uh, me to one hotel in particular that I thought attracted my attention run by an elderly, eccentric British couple. Which, oh, my. Which, which, unfortunately, they were full. But they directed me to a, that's, that's, that chap over there, I believe, needs someone who might be able to stay with him. You might want to speak with him. So there was this big red-headed kid from, like, the U.K., and I, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I could use a roommate for a few days. And he'd been working with Mother Teresa for, like, the last six months. So he was going back to, the, back to home. He was going back home after this stint here. And so I thought, I'd got to talk to this guy about what his experiences were like. So the, as we're talking, he says, let's go out for some dinner. And first thing he does is like hails a rickshaw. And I'm looking <laughs> at him like, you've got to be kidding me. And he goes, oh, believe me, they want you as a fare. Because first of all, you're not going to kick them. And you're going to probably pay about five times or ten times what everybody else is around here, even though it's only like a buck or something, a buck or two. So you're a prime fare. He goes, I use them. You should use them. So we climbed in the rickshaw. And this guy grunts and pulls, and next thing you know, we're being, you know, pulled down the streets at Calcutta in this thing. It was a little bizarre, 
But, uh, you know, he went in Rome. And, I, you know, the guy did get a good fare. He was very happy when we gave him, like, the 30 rupees or whatever it was. Now, how are the shocks on a rickshaw? Not they... good at all. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Coney Company could probably make a killing if they could rig one of those things up with a little shock absorber. <laughs> I think that book, uh, actually, City of Joy, talks about uh, one of the characters is a rickshaw operator mm-hmm. in India. And they run barefoot. Really? Yeah. And they run in the mon- in the monsoon, which I can't imagine. When the water's in the streets, they're running barefoot through like streets full of water with like rusty tin cans below. And yeah, I mean, it's like it's it is it's something that's hard to conceive of here in America. I'm guessing they spend a lot of money on tough actin tenactin. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> dying of tetanus is a real concern <laughs> over there, you know. And they, India loses like thirty thousand people a year to tetanus, something like that. But they don't they don't give injections and. Part of it is they pack wounds with cow dung. Not a recommended practice uh, by American standards, and that gives them some of the, the Clostridium tetani bacteria in the wound, and then they, they get tetanus. But I, know I'm not, I, would, I would do the rickshaw again if I went back to Calcutta. I, it was like it's just something that it's, it's shocking. It seems weird, but it's part of the culture there. The Indians all use them. I mean, have you been in a place at maybe a time of catastrophe crisis or you know there's a lot of political unrest no when there's a countries that are having in the middle of a crisis or catastrophe are probably worth avoiding at that particular time uh but uh, a lot of countries got real bad governments i mean burma was the burmese for example the burmese people nicest smilingest seemingly happiest people i think i've ever met anywhere and yet their government is terrible their government has imprisoned the the woman that really won the election uh, a decade or so ago uh, on Song Suu Kyi. She's been in jail because the government didn't like the fact that she won the election, so they put her in jail and invalidated the results. But you think Florida 2000 was bad? I mean, this <laughs> is like, they just pretty much, at least Al Gore didn't have to go to prison. Well, but, I mean, you hear things about, you know, like an American tourist trapped in a Turkish prison. Is that a fear for you? I mean, do you like research the local laws before you go there? Well, or it's, how yeah, you... it was a good policy. I wouldn't recommend trying to, to smuggle large quantities of, <laughs> of hashish out of a country. That's, that's probably, a good, okay, that's good a point. Good, good starting point. Yeah, I mean, some countries have really tough drug laws. Malaysia. But having said that, I remember being in, uh, in, I was in Indonesia, I guess, and this crazy American lawyer was over there, and he says, "You want to, you want to smoke some, uh, smoke some Thai bud," and he opens up this this briefcase. He's got like this sizable amount of of Thai stick marijuana in this thing, and I'm like, "Where'd you get that?" He goes, "Oh, I, I brought it in," and like <laughs> like you brought you brought marijuana into into Malaysia. And he's like, well, yeah. He goes, he goes look, look, you got to understand. They're going for a big drug dealer. Those are the ones they have the death penalty for. There's no way I get the death penalty for this. I'm thinking like, well, you're a lot braver and dumber man than I is all I got to say. Well, maybe there's a, a bit of an association here, or a bit of a natural jump from the last topic to this topic. But <laughs> food. I think that you should try to some of the delicacies they have in different places and just different foods. I mean, we got, in, America, in America, we're lucky because we have all nationalities, all different food types. But but I'm thinking of like um, one time in South Africa. Actually, it was in Botswana, which is the country right above South Africa. I'd read years before that one of the major sources of protein there is the caterpillar migration. The caterpillars come out in huge numbers, and the people of Botswana gather them up, dry them, fry them. Grind them up into high protein powder, and this is actually a substantial part of their diet, apparently. 
in Botswana. So I, when I got there, I noticed people were selling on the sides of the road these what looked like little kind of these things look kind of like brown curly fries, but mm-hmm. they were the fried caterpillars. And people would walk up and buy a few and walk off with them, like you know, like you're buying potato chips. So How I thought, were they? well, I, I I felt I needed to find out, so I went over and took like a ten pula or whatever it was, a little coin, and handed it to the little lady in the street, and she hands me three of them. So I'm contemplating what to do, looking down at this thing, and this this guy that looks like something out of Central Casting, you know, from the from like a Rudyard Kipling era, you know, straight mustache out, comes walking <laughs> over, looks down at me and goes, they're worms, they eat them. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, well, what do they taste like? I don't know. <laughs> I don't eat worms. <laughs> so what did they taste like? <laughs> uh, like French fries, kind of really? with, with crunchy heads. <laughs> they had a little added spice in them, but they, they weren't bad. You know, they don't they'd catch on in America, but, uh, but they weren't bad. What are some of the health precautions that you would recommend? Because you've been to places that don't I, have the most first-rate health care systems, I no, would imagine. No, I remember getting scabies in Cuba, but uh, these things happen. But you need to, if you're going to go to malarial areas, you need to take the pills. You need to take, some countries won't let you in unless you've got like a yellow fever vaccination. So you do all that research beforehand. Um, you don't have to be a medically trained person just to kind of use some of the sensible precautions you'd want to you'd want to use. You be careful about the water, careful about the food. You want to eat like cooked vegetables. Those are usually pretty safe. Uh, or one, one trick from medical school I thought was one that might be useful for some of our listeners. Someday you find yourself in a foreign country, you got no bottled water handy. Uh, most of the water heaters in your hotel will get the water hot enough to kill the pathogens. So if you're thirsty at night, don't draw yourself a glass of cold water. If you're in a shady place, get a glass of warm water and let it cool off. And by the time it cools off and it's drinkable, it's probably be safer than something out of the out of the cold tap. Mm-mm. But you should probably have iodine with you. All the all the usual stuff. A little bit a little bit of your basic homework will probably keep most people out of trouble. And I and I would recommend as we close that uh, we that I think everyone should just try and travel more. Americans something like one-fourth of Americans have passports. It's an astoundingly low number. The, the vast majority of Americans do not have a passport, and uh, which means they don't, they don't travel. And I don't really count you know, going across the border into Vancouver, B.C. or Tijuana as like getting out of the country. So I would really encourage everyone to do it. It's a wonderful experience. Well, Douglas Everett, thank you so much for uh, letting us switch chairs today. <laughs> I get to interview you. Well, let's do it again. This is kind of fun. And, uh, yeah, we'll hand things back over to you for the next segment. All right. Well, Steve, thanks. Thank you, Doug.
All right, we are back. Let's talk a little bit about science and technology where it meets a military-industrial complex. Let me read this item from New Scientist, uh, September 23rd issue. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. So said the armed robot in Paul Verhoeven's 1987 movie, RoboCop. The suspect drops his weapon, but a fault in the robot's software means it opens fire anyway. Nearly two decades later, such fictional weapon-toting robots are looking startlingly close to reality. And, New Scientist has discovered, some may eventually help to decide who is friend and who is foe. Sometime in the coming months, chances are that we'll be seeing TV reports that an armed, remote-controlled robot has been used in anger for the first time. They'll appear when they'll appear. I can't talk about when that may be, said Bob Quinn, general manager at Foster Miller of Waltham, Massachusetts, whose machine gun-equipped robot, called S.W.O.R.D., was certified safe for use by U.S. forces in June. These first robots are going to be fully controlled by a soldier, but the Pentagon's Office of Naval Research shows that military robots are one day going to be asked to make some important decisions on their own. The ONR wants to engineer mobile robots to, quote, understand cooperative and uncooperative people and inform their operator if they seem a threat. It hopes to do this using artificial intelligence software fed with data from remote physiological stress monitoring systems and by using speech, face, and gesture recognition. From this, it would draw inferences about the threat that person poses. Said Lucy Sukman, an expert in human-computer interactions at Lancaster University, UK, This plan is just ridiculous. It involves the worst kind of simplistic profiling. It's a fantasy on the part of technology enthusiasts within the Pentagon. Bob Quinn, however, disagreed. Recognition technology is progressing fast. I think it'll separate the wheat from the chaff, he predicted. Personally, I'd hate to be wheat mistaken for chaff. If human troops have a hard time distinguishing friend from foe in Iraq, how do you think robots are going to do? Uh, personally, I'm not sure that saying cloud to barada nikto is going to save you. I guess that reference will separate all of those who have seen the classic 1951 sci-fi movie The Day the Earth Stood Still from those who didn't. But, you know, one day I was in Bolivia many years back uh, in a small town in Bolivia. We were having dinner at a restaurant, and there was a TV in the corner on the bar that was showing RoboCop. I believe it was a TV show. May have been the movie. Anyway, it showed robots patrolling the streets of Los Angeles, shooting machine guns at people. And I walked over to a guy watching this, and I said in Spanish, you know, the problem with this is people think this is how it is in Los Angeles. The guy looked at me and said, that's not how it is? And he was serious. Well, well, maybe before long, that will be how it is. We want to talk about an article in New Scientist about uh, the surprising possibilities of finding living organisms in shockingly cold temperatures. But we're going to defer that uh, to next week's show. Some bad news on the environmental front. It appears the ozone hole, which last year looked smaller than it had been in recent years, opened up to a record size this winter. It appears that the rosy forecasts that it might close within 20 years uh, may have been just too optimistic. Said New Scientist magazine, maybe this is the Earth's way of telling President George W. Bush that global warming cannot be ignored, 
But uh, in just one year, the perennial sea ice cover in the Arctic has shrunk by nearly three quarters of a million square kilometers, an area comparable to that of Bush's home state of Texas. If this trend continues, it could open a vast ice-free region in the East Arctic Ocean. Some good news on the upcoming uh, cold and flu season. Sabin Russell, writing in the Chronicle, notes that as millions of Americans prepare to line up for the annual flu shot, a leading expert on the feared strain of avian influenza told researchers in San Francisco that ordinary vaccine might save lives if the bird disease ever starts spreading among humans. Robert Webster of St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis told delegates at a conference that 50% of a small group of lab mice injected with a component of the annual flu vaccine, survived exposure to a bird flu strain that ordinarily would have killed all of them. Well, 50-50 is a lot better than 100%, so uh, that is some encouraging news. God, we love New Scientist magazine. Uh, article in the September 30th issue, titled, What's Your Poison? was pretty darn interesting. The article reports on the research by uh, snake venom researcher Brian Grigg Fry, who made his first discovery the hard way. According to the article, during his PhD, he handled a snake whose venom was largely unknown. As far as anyone knew, Stevens banded snakes were not considered dangerous, Fry said. I clearly proved this wrong as my body hit the ground seconds after the bite. Several thousand snakes and more than 20 bites later, Fry, now deputy director at the Australian Venom Research Unit at the University of Melbourne, has gone one better. He now says the vast majority of snakes on the planet are venomous, even some commonly kept as pets. And Dr. Fry has single-handedly rewritten the story of snake venom evolution. Before he came along, the story went something like this. The first snakes evolved from lizards and were small burrowing creatures less than a meter long. About 60 to 80 million years ago, they split into constrictor type snakes and the advanced snakes, which are further divided into four families, vipers, cobras, stiletto snakes, and everything else. Leaving aside the colubrids, the everything else category, most of which were thought to have nothing more dangerous than slightly toxic saliva, venom was assumed to have evolved independently in each of the other three families. But study of the venom glands of advanced snakes and venomous lizards revealed that these glands did not evolve independently in the three snake families, or even in a common snake ancestor, but apparently much earlier in a lizard ancestor 200 million years ago. Venom evolved only once in the common ancestor of all snakes, plus some other reptiles, which include the Komodo dragon, the green iguana, and the Gila monster. The upshot of all this is while the supposedly non-venomous colubrids were widely believed to have only mildly toxic saliva, Fry's work shows they in fact actually possess true venom. In fact, Dr. Fry found snakes in pet stores whose venom glands have enough poison in them to kill a human. The venom of the rat snake, for example, a common choice of pet, includes a neurotoxin which is as potent as the cobra equivalent. Fortunately for would-be pet owners, the rat snake has no front fangs, leaving these snakes with a rather crude venom delivery system. Pretty interesting stuff. It appears that the, uh, the constrictor snakes lost the ability to, to make poison because they crushed their prey. They didn't need the poison, but that the other snakes, all of them, all of them apparently retain 
some ability to inject poison. Fortunately, these uh, things like the rat snake uh, prefer uh, smaller prey than human beings. But a sidelight in this article, which I thought was really curious, which I did not know, was that captopril, an extremely common uh, antihypertensive, was developed from the venom of a lancehead viper. It's one of the most widely used medications for high blood pressure. And I got to tell you, when the drug detail guys came around to talk about captopril, they left out the part about the lancehead viper. But uh, snake venom is a, is a potent mix. It contains, you know, a couple dozen uh, different elements in, in many cases, and the research into it's going to produce a lot more medicine. So uh, uh, stay tuned. We've only got about two minutes left, so let's do our, our final item here. Uh, we may get a break, emphasis on the word may, but we may get a break in the next uh, few decades as regards global warming from a, an unlikely source. Scientists who have studied um, sunspots believe that uh, we've been undergoing a period of high solar activity for the past 50 to 100 years, and that uh, we, they're expecting a bit of a crash for the next few decades. And when you get a crash in the number of sunspots, the sun cools off just a little bit. Leif Svalgard from Stanford's been studying uh, polar magnetic activity uh, on the sun and expects a crash. The sun's polar field is now at its weakest since measurements began in the early 50s, and uh, the latest figures indicate that the sun's activity will be weaker during the next decade than it has been for more than 100 years, and just in time, too. Sunspots are so routine on the solar surface. Any, any amateur astronomer has probably projected the sun and, and seen them. They're very, very common, especially during the peak of the 11-year cycle. But for a period between 1645 and 1715, the appearance of even a single sunspot was major astronomical news, which sparked uh, communications from one observatory to another all across Europe. And uh, things got colder at that time. The French army used frozen rivers to invade the Netherlands. New Yorkers during that time period could walk from Manhattan to Staten Island across the frozen harbor. Sea ice surrounded Iceland for miles, and the island's population dropped by half. So uh, if the sun's going to cool off, this would be a really good time for it to do it. That's it for this week's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. Here comes the sun.